Hey everyone, welcome back to the Pop Anime Comics Lounge where I have with me the legendary Dennis Kitchen who is a writer, artist, editor, and the founder of Kitchen Sink Press which has published a variety of works including those by the late Howard Cruz, Will Eisner, Harvey Kutzerman, Al Cap, Art Spiegelman, R. Crum, and Trina Robbins to name a few. And you've also written several books yourself as well as the artists that I just mentioned about them. And he's also responsible for the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund just to name a few of the many things he has done so far in his career. So thank you for being on the podcast. Happy to, Andrew. Now, I am super excited, and we're going to talk about a lot of different things. And I think the logical place to start with your career and everything that you have done is what drew you to writing and drawing comic books and cartoons, and how did you really get involved in that sector? Well, I would have to say part of that is due to my generation. When I was growing up, I didn't have nearly as many things to distract me as someone young might today. So when I was a kid, comic books were a big deal. I would spend my allowance on them just about every week, and I would swap with friends, and I would pour over them and tried my best to build a collection. Though I wasn't consciously a collector at the time, I was saving them because they seemed to have value and Back then, you know, there were only about four TV channels, and you couldn't put a DVD on, you couldn't watch reruns anywhere. It was just like, once you saw it, it was gone. It was ethereal. Whereas with a comic book, I could reread it again. I could pour over each panel. And out of that original passion, I think, grew the idea in my head that maybe I could do that someday. And speaking about that, the real big jump for that really happened in college for you, where you attended the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, and during that time you co-founded Snide. How did all of that come about? Because you contributed comics and cartoons into that newspaper, well, magazine. Yeah, UWM, certainly back then, I think still now, is a commuter campus, and it had never had its own humor magazine. I met up with a transfer student from New York who was aggressive, ambitious writer, and together we thought we could pull it off, and we did. And I think early on, it was just an example for me of if you put your mind to something and you put energy into it, you can make it happen. So we built something out of nothing and sold advertising, had a profitable issue, and the writer who was the editor-in-chief left as a senior, and I was supposed to inherit it. Unfortunately, when he left, he took the treasury with him. So I was left with an office and an empty treasury, and what I had planned to be the all-comic book issue of Snide ended up being my first self-published comic, which was an underground comic called Mom's Homemade Comics Number 1, and it was just to set up the pun subtitle, which was Straight from the Kitchen to You. Timing's everything in life in general, and I was at that point fresh out of college, the middle of the Vietnam War. The whole hippie scene was happening, the whole counterculture, and that comic was one of the earliest of what we now call the underground comics. And I had enough, I guess, entrepreneurial instincts that I was able to successfully sell it. I printed 4,000 copies, sold nearly all of them on the east side of Milwaukee, which is not bad in retrospect. And speaking about that, because this is the 1960s, in particular 1969, what was the comic book scene like? What was the underground comic scene like? And how were comics perceived overall? Well, they were starting to gain a little bit of respect. I was caught up in the Marvel revival when Stan Lee reinvented the superheroes and he and Jack Kirby and Steve Ditko and crew were turning out suddenly some more interesting comics starting in the 50s after Dr. Wortham and Congress and 
parent organizations forced the comics industry to adopt that comic code authority to self-censor. Comics really lost a lot of what made them special and creepy and scary, and the good was kind of eliminated, in my view, as a reader. The underground comics suddenly opened up for my generation the chance to, again, produce comics that were not censored. And at the same time, we were caught up by the counterculture movement, the kids who were opposed to the Vietnam War, and guys who let their hair grow long and wanted to legalize pot, and so many things all happening around the same time. It was a cultural flurry, as these things tend to be, affect a large portion of the generation. And so I was swept up in it. And it was partly political, and it was partly creative, and it was exhilarating. And at the same time, because I was on the ground floor of it, the entrepreneurial part of me also had a chance to flex muscles. And again, I never thought of myself as being a potential businessman of any kind. I had gone to school actually to study journalism, but I found an opportunity. And after my own first comic was successful and profitable, I ended up being a publisher, kind of out of default. Filled a vacuum. And speaking about becoming a publisher, I think we were alluding to this and we sort of addressed it, but what really inspired Kitchen Sink Press to be born in 1970 and really made you want to pursue that and produce more of your comic books and give other people a chance as well? Again, it wasn't a business plan, just things happened. And initially, I never wanted to publish or even self-publish. I self-published out of necessity because here I am in the Midwest, where there's really no publishing industry there. I self-publish out of necessity, but as soon as I could, I found a publisher, which ended up being a publisher in Berkeley, California, and they did my next comic, Mom's Number 2. They reprinted Number 1, and I thought, this is great. I can just sit back and draw for the rest of my life, and checks will roll in. But when a check finally did roll in, nothing came with it. There was no accounting, no statement, no explanation, and it just seemed odd to me. So I called the publisher and I asked why there was no explanation. And instead of an explanation, I got somebody who was being very defensive and said, are you accusing me of being a crook? And it did suddenly occur to me, well, yeah, maybe, because why can't I just get some answers to simple questions like, how many did you print? And by the way, we never discussed what my royalty was. What was it? So point is, I got really pissed off at that company, and I decided I'm just going to self-publish again. What's the big deal? I did it already before. And at that time, I was getting to know a couple of the Chicago-based underground cartoonists, the late Jay Lynch and Skip Williamson who were producing a title called Bijou, and they were unhappy with the very same publisher, and they also weren't happy with their accounting. And I said to them, I'm just going to self-publish my next comic. I don't need them. And Jay said to me, well, would you do Bijou as well? And I naively said, sure, two is as easy as one. And at that moment, I became a publisher without even really taking five minutes to think it through. But I was so conscious of feeling ripped off by the West Coast publisher that I made doubly sure I would treat them well, basically applying the golden rule of I didn't like the way I was treated. I better do it right for them. And so I was very, very punctilious with the accounting. And I hustled those books as hard as I hustled my own. And I started building a national network and just really put my mind to it. And before long, other people were bringing comics to me, including Robert Crumb passed through Milwaukee and said, I'll give you my next book and things that I couldn't have expected or planned. And so the next thing I knew, Kitchen Sink was a publishing company and it expanded and 
pretty soon I had a partner, I had employees, multiple titles, a warehouse, and we're distributing other people's comics as well. But none of it, I assure you, was planned. It was part of that flurry of 60s and early 70s alternative culture. And one of the things about Kitchen Sink Press was that creators own their own work for the most part. Royalties were more fair. And I don't know how many people know how the comic industry is set up, but DC and Marvel don't follow those same rules. What made you want to have creators own their own work and receive better royalties? And do you feel that it creates more of a creative and more inclusive culture in the comic book publishing realm? Well, the bottom line is it's just the ethical way to do it. Part of it comes from what I said earlier, using the golden rule. I certainly expected to own my own copyright, and I expected to own my own artwork, and I expected to have control over it, and I gave that same courtesy to the artists I published. It just seemed right to me. I wasn't looking to be a DC Comics. Part of it came also, I referred earlier to the hippie subculture. There was a sense of we're going to do things better than the prior generation. We opposed the Vietnam War because it seemed like a bad war. We opposed a lot of the things our prior generation did. We were fighting for civil rights, for women's rights, for gay rights, legalized pot. There were all kinds of issues. We just thought society was not doing right at that time. And most of those issues, when you look now at what's transpired, in the last, say, half century, there's been great progress and change. But it wasn't the case in the late 60s. Like every generation, you inherit and you try to fix or change. And speaking about the growth in the 1970s, Kitchen Sink also had Krupp Syndicate, which then was distributing about 50 comics slash cartoons to underground newspapers and underground comic sectors, I guess is the word. And when did you realize that you needed to form a parent company to manage your publishing company? Well, it's confusing to some people. Sometimes Krupp and Kitchen Sink were used interchangeably, but Krupp was the parent company, the corporation. And the joke on my letterhead of the time was it was a big octopus and each tentacle held a division of the company, some of which were real and some of which were a bit exaggerated. Because at the time, I felt I was a socialist and I wanted to be fair economically with everyone. And being a businessman, I felt guilty about it. And so I made fun of it. And that's why an octopus. And I didn't at that time take particularly seriously being in business. I wasn't looking at the bottom line. As long as I could have fun and we grew and we survived, to me, that was what it was about. It wasn't about a maximum the profit or the bottom line in any way. So Krupp was kind of the holding company. Kitchen Sink was the imprint that was on all of the comic books and the books. But when we had the syndicate you mentioned, that was the Krupp syndicate. I should explain to your listeners that around the same time I started the comic company, I had co-founded a alternative paper in Wisconsin called the Bugle-American, which was inspired, oddly enough, by the J. Jonah Jameson's Bugle and Spider-Man, because I was a fan at that point, and it actually inspired the name of the paper. And about four or five other cartoonists and myself every week would do a new strip that ran in the paper. We didn't get paid because it was an underground paper, and it was always struggling to survive. But what we decided to do to try to monetize it was to 
offer them to other underground papers and college papers. So we sent out a nice mailing and we got about 50 papers to subscribe to pay, I think, $5 a week at the time. And so we did that for, gosh, probably a year or so, every week sending out these packets. But what we were finding out was, I guess we shouldn't have been shocked. Most of the underground papers struggled to pay the invoices and a lot of the college papers didn't for other reasons. I think the accounting departments at both the student papers and the underground papers didn't really respect an invoice and we found we were barely paying for the cost of the mailing. So after a year of probably breaking even at best or losing money, we pulled the rug out from under that venture. But again, fun while it lasted. It was an experiment. Comic books were going strong, so we didn't need the syndicate. Other tentacles held the Ordinary Record Company, which actually produced the 78 RPM by Grum, totally obsolete format. We had a head shop. We had a mail order company. We had an art studio. Not to say it was as big as it might sound, but each of them was some part of what we did. Uh, Grum was the parent company. And now getting back to the comic stuff, because that's what I think people are really interested in. The 70s were very interesting because a lot of stuff was going on. And I think it even went a little bit into the 80s where Kitchen Sink was reprinting issues of The Spirit by Will Eisner. And some of those issues were dating back to the 1940s. So how did this all come about and bring that comic that's a little bit older back to a more modern time? Well, again, you have to put yourself in the context of the early 70s. There wasn't a network of comic shops as fans now are accustomed to. There certainly wasn't the kind of mail order opportunity or online shopping, that sort of thing. It was kind of a vacuum back then, and comic fans were just beginning to organize with fanzines. My main outlet for underground comics was head shops. And in states where marijuana is legal now, people start to have a sense of that again in the eight states or so where you can go in and legally buy pot. Back in those days, pot, of course, was not legal, but there were head shops where you buy your rolling papers and your paraphernalia of various kinds. And most of those shops had a spinner rack with underground comics. So that was our primary outlet. While that was reaching my peer audience of other hippies, to summarize it, I was still a fan of comics that had come earlier. I had been a fan of newspaper strip comics as well as older comic books. And as I became aware of some of the classic material, my feeling was it ought to be available to my generation. And with very, very few exceptions, it was not. I happened to meet Will Eisner in 1971 at the first comic convention I ever attended in New York. And he was surprisingly very interested in what was going on in the underground. So I took advantage of that opportunity of meeting him to propose reprinting the spirit. And he was very skeptical that my generation would have any interest in the stuff that he had been producing in the 1940s. My gut feeling was, it's good comics, it's timeless, let me try. And so he gave me a license to produce it, and I was pleased to see it did so well, well enough that Jim Warren swept in and made him a better offer, at least for a short term, and ended up coming back to me again. But the same was true for other things I reprinted. I was a fan. I assumed there were other fans 
and I was willing to test it. And speaking about Will Eisner, you and him have a very interesting relationship regarding the licensing, it leaving, coming back to reprinting his artwork, managing certain aspects of his estate, as well as certain publishing components of him. How did all of this form and what is it like to really continue and protect his legacy that he's left? Because he is kind of responsible for the graphic novel being a format. Yeah, certainly with Contract with God in 1978 kick-started what is now a phenomenon. The way it started was in part what I mentioned, a chance meeting at this New York convention. It wasn't even particularly chance. He had actually sought me out, which blew my mind because he was curious what was going on with the so-called underground comics. And once I had his business card and his contact information, I certainly followed up pretty aggressively and was able to get the right, as I said, to do a couple of people call the underground spirit because he did some slightly risque material and they were distributed alongside Crumb and Bijou and Mom So Made Comics and that sort of thing. But in terms of the relationship growing. Again, the fact that I treated him the same way I treated the other artists, made sure the accountings were accurate and timely, he was paid on time, made sure the production values were the highest I could afford, hustled the books and promoted them as best I could, that impressed him. And I think he saw perhaps in me the same entrepreneurial spirit that had driven him when he was a very young man to create his packaging shop with Jerry Iger when he was just a teenager and to negotiate the syndicated spirit when he was only 22 years old, astonishingly was given that responsibility and was actually able to negotiate ownership when almost nobody in those days in the cartooning ranks owned their own property. So I think he saw enough of a parallel in me that he kept giving me more rope and as long as I kept coming through we did more and more. We saw each other more and a friendship developed and a trust. So it ends up now one of my agencies is his literary agency and another one is the art agency. So we continue to monitor everything that falls under that intellectual property umbrella. So it's been a great privilege and pleasure to have that long relationship. Effectively, the same thing happened with Harvey Kurtzman, who is another one that I was a big admirer of. Almost every cartoonist of my generation grew up in awe of Kurtzman and Eisner and many others. I was very lucky that I was able to have those relationships at a time when the comics industry was just beginning to grow and flex its muscle. And now I want to table that for a little bit because I do want to talk quickly about the 80s for Kitchen Sink. Because things were changing in the 80s and Will Eisner and the licensing with the spirit sort of played a part in that where Kitchen Sink was transitioning from being underground to being a bit more above ground in the 1980s. And what brought on that change, I think, you know, head shops being targeted and closed was part of it, but also comics were changing. So what was that like for you? Yeah, you just said it. It was a combination of, not surprisingly, the head shops, because they were generally the town, the city, the neighborhood didn't want a head shop attracting what they might consider an unsavory crowd. So they were pressured out of business under all kinds of ordinance excuses. Fortunately for me, the kind of thing I was doing, about the same time, the comic fans and the organized fandom was getting to the point where shops were springing up all over the place, especially in larger cities, college towns. And then we had specialty distributors, starting with Phil Suling and then later other imitators who grew eventually into Diamond, who's the only survivor. But at one point, we had about 10 viable national comics distributors and so it allowed a relatively smaller middle-sized publisher like me to suddenly get my product into 
two or three thousand or more comic shops in addition to that declining head shop market. And so it was a natural growth of the comic book as a medium getting popular enough that it became a self-contained business that could survive outside the old business model. The old business model was that you had to find comic books on racks in places like drugstores or newsstands which, again, not to get too deep into the weeds, but in those days, certainly when I was growing up, when comics were 10 cents, 12 cents, 20 cents, imagine everything else on the racks were always a higher retail price. So they were more attractive both to the retailer and the distributor because there was a higher profit margin. So basically, nobody really wanted to deal with comic books, but there became enough comic collectors and buyers that finally the comic shop as a specialty store became viable and suddenly a collector could go in and find entire walls of comics that they could probably never find any kind of a newsstand or a drugstore. So during this period, everyone who had been in an earlier incarnation like me had to adjust to this new business model. And I embraced it. I thought it was great. No regrets that it evolved the way it did, other than it evolved into what we have now is a monopoly distributor, but there's still comic shops and still relatively easy to get. And then you add the internet on top of that, and it's another layer that helps a collector. So in my lifetime, I've seen comic books change in a tremendously dramatic way, all for the good, I would say, because the quality of comics has also grown. The number of people creating them has grown tremendously. And we have now what I call a truly literary comics medium. For decades, you couldn't really say that, at least for 90-some percent of the product. And continuing to speak about the 1980s, one of the things that Kitchen Sink did that was interesting, you still had your hand in some underground products. And one of them was Howard Cruz's Gay Comics. And all throughout, just the background for those who don't know this, and they can listen to the interview because Howard Cruz himself explains it. But all throughout the 70s, he was very private, not out there about being gay. And how did this comic come about? And what was either the fear or the joy of publishing it going on with you when sure. you wanted to do it? I had been a fan of Howard since I first discovered him early on. He was doing college strips, and I agreed to publish his comics first as a series of characters called Barefoots, and then later he contributed to a number of kitchen sinks anthologies like Snarf and Dope Comics and others. I noticed in Barefoot he had a character who was an artist who was gay in the strip. And can't remember the exact issue or story, but I do know that back then, you got to remember this is way before the internet and email and texting and even phone calls were expensive then. So we were communicating through snail mail and used to write long letters to each other, as I did with many artists. And in one of the letters to him, I said, Howard, no offense or anything, but is that Headrack character kind of, by chance, autobiographical? And he answered, yes. He said, I am gay. He said, it's not something I'm open about. So... I had thought for a while about the fact that the whole point of underground comics was to open up the medium and to allow voices, you know, that didn't have a voice in comics before, including women who barely had a toe in comics and people of color, anybody who had a voice ought to have a voice. And so I said to him, there ought to be a forum for gay cartoonists. And he said, I agree. He said, I would love to participate in that. And I said, well, you're the only gay cartoonist I know. Would you edit it? And at first he was reluctant because he thought it could hurt his freelance career back then, especially since he lived in 
in Birmingham, Alabama, of all places. But he did think about it, and he came back to me, and he said, I agree. He said, I will edit it, and thank you for asking. And then he said, there's only one problem. I don't know any other gay cartoonists either. So what we ended up doing was taking my entire Rolodex at the time and sending out a form letter, basically saying, dear artist, if you are gay, bi, would you be interested in contributing to this comic? And I can't remember, probably we sent a hundred or so out. And I got a few artists calling and cursing me for sending them the letter. But at the same time, what it did was it pulled a good number of artists out of the closet and enough that our was able to begin and once we had an issue out there then it became a beacon for anybody who wanted to participate so again it grew out of that what i would call underground ethos or the spirit of the counterculture was overdue and glad i did it it was a particular challenge distributing because most comic shops would not carry it i'm sad to say there was a lot of homophobia back then among both fans and retailers but we found alternative channels and it ended up one of many milestones i look back on and i was very glad i proposed the one i did and we should add for your listeners who aren't aware that dear howard died last week at 75 after a long battle with cancer and for those who are listening to this later, it was two days, I believe, before Thanksgiving, just to give time context to everybody if you're listening six months from now. And now I know we're going to skip a few things and we're going to talk about sort of an elephant in the room. And that was the 1990s with Kitchen Sink merged with Tundra. What was going on with the merge, the move to Massachusetts? What happened? Some good came out of it. Some not so good came out of it. And I don't want to bury anybody here because I like a lot of people involved in that. No, I wouldn't look to bury anyone either, Andrew. I would say I don't necessarily regret what happened in hindsight. At the time, you have to remember, well, of course, you don't have to remember. I should say for listeners who aren't aware, I was at that time living in central Wisconsin, which was great for low overhead. And it was great just for living in a place with fresh air and trees around me, but it was lonely. I was divorced and I was culturally deprived in some ways. And I got a call one Sunday afternoon from Kevin Eastman, who was having problems with Tundra. And to make a long story short, he proposed that we bring our companies together. And I'll never forget his pitch was, it'll be your dream come true or your worst nightmare. And all I heard was dream come true. And what happened was we both kind of rushed into it without what's called due diligence. So we were both, I think, disappointed in the way it turned out for varying reasons. And it also coincided with the downturn in the comic market, which historically has been an industry with sharp ups and downs. So we coincided with a downturn and that didn't help. And so the bottom line was we made that move in 1993 and by 1999 or 1998, Kitchen Sink was out of business. And part of that had to do with Kevin's own turtle empire declining because it too was going through a down cycle after being huge for a while. So Kevin was not able to make some of the investment promises that he was supposed to. But again, it's not because he was a bad person. He was a, a victim of some bad timing. And to this day, I don't hold anything against Kevin himself. But the merger itself ultimately was not successful. That said, we published some pretty amazing things together. And I'm proud of that. I'm still in Massachusetts where I ended up coming because of it. And I have no regrets about that either. 
So like anything in life, sometimes you make a decision and it turns out great and sometimes not so great. This one on paper was not one that ultimately worked out. My biggest regret is that the company fell apart just before the internet really took off and just before the graphic novel revolution took off. And had we clung on for another year or two, I think, who knows, we'd be probably, I'd say, comparable to Fantagraphics or another indie that managed to capitalize on the growth of the medium. But I didn't, we didn't, and so in 1999, I ended up having to reinvent myself. And before we get to the reinventing, we do have to talk about something that you are known for that has done wonders for the comic industry and free speech in general. And that started in the 80s with a certain legal case involving Michael Coronia. And I think I'm saying his name right, who had a kitchen sink book got in trouble for obscene material, just to give the quick summary. And then the conviction was overturned, but you decided to raise money to get that conviction overturned. So how did this case all come about? And how did you get involved? And what made you step out and donate money to fight this battle? Well, I mentioned earlier that at one point we had about 10 distributors in the comics industry, and one of them was an outfit called Friendly Frank's Distribution out of Gary, Indiana. And Frank also was a retailer with a chain of, I think, a half a dozen or so stores in northern Indiana and suburbs of Chicago. And one of his stores in Lansing, Illinois, was uh, the victim of a bust where a couple of the local cops walked in. They didn't like what they saw, and they confiscated, as I recall, about a dozen comics and arrested the manager, Michael Correa. And they basically charged him with displaying, not even selling, but displaying obscene material under some local ordinance. And when I actually read the newspaper account, at least one of the cops turned out to be a religious zealot of some kind because he complained to the reporter that he walked into the shop and it was full of satanic material. (laughs) He didn't say anything about illegal or immoral or anything. He said satanic. He even referred to a Wonder Woman poster as being satanic. So figure a cop who sees the devil in Wonder Woman and so on is probably got some issues and shouldn't be a cop on the beat. But I was personally offended because one of the comics confiscated was called Omaha the Cat Dancer, which was a series I had published for quite some time. And while it had erotic elements, it was, to me, a very literate comic, just a first-class comic in all respects. And I resented that it was thrown in a category of obscene. So as you mentioned, the retailer, Frank, did hire an attorney and he challenged the arrest and they ended up losing at a local level, which really then angered me more. It turned out he had not hired an attorney who was a specialist in the First Amendment. And so I decided on my own, I would raise money, find an attorney who was really competent, who could challenge and hopefully overturn this conviction because Michael, the manager, faced a few months in jail and uh, I think a few thousand dollars fine. So I put together a portfolio with about a dozen artists, including Will Eisner and Robert Crumb and Howard Cruz and Frank Miller and a bunch of others and got everyone along the chain to basically allow it to make as much money as possible. The printer printed it at cost. The distributors, as I recall, failed to take their normal share. 
bottom line, I raised enough money to hire the best First Amendment attorney in the country, certainly in the Midwest. And he did overturn the case at the appellate level. And at that point, there was, I think, around $20,000 left in the checking account. And I could have, I suppose, done anything with the money, including giving it to another charity. But it occurred to me that maybe, just maybe, there would be other cases involving comics, and maybe there should be a permanent organization. And so that's how Comic Book Legal Defense Fund began. And as it turned out, my hunch was right, because there had been lots of shops all over the country who had been hassled by what I would call overzealous prosecutors or overzealous cops. And once we had a nationally known umbrella organization that was publicized, that had an 800 number, we were surprised how many calls we started to get from shops who said, hey, I need your help. So ever since 1986, it's now been around and still defending cases. It's still educating retailers and the public, and it's still a proponent of First Amendment rights. And you were, I believe, one of the first presidents, if not the first president of the organization. Yeah, I ran it for the first 18 years, and then I just thought, it needed new blood, and I was also super busy, and I wasn't able to give it as much attention as I had in earlier years, so I resigned, which shocked a few people, but I also proposed to the board that they institute term limits for everybody so that I wouldn't be the only one who got cycled out after a few years. And they did adopt that. So now it's a rotating board. I'm still on the advisory board, so I'm tangentially involved. But basically, Charles Brownstein and now Bob Shrek and a few others run it out of Portland, Oregon. There's a board that meets semi-annually, and the board is always represented by every component of the industry, distribution, retailing, creators. There's always an attorney or two. So there are all voices and types of expertise to address any issue. And it's become a great umbrella organization that unites the industry in a way that is hard to unite those disparate elements. And so my question to you with it is that free speech with comics has changed amazingly in the last few years. What do you feel in 2019 and going into 2020? What is the greatest threat to comic books and free speech, considering that you've lived through almost 50 generations plus of comic books and you've seen it change every decade? It does, because life changes, technology changes. Right now, it seems, and again, I'm not monitoring it as close as Charles and the staff that's in the trenches, but certainly uh, technologically now you have busts sometimes. We've had them with Canadian customs busting somebody because they crossed the border and they found objectionable manga, adult manga on their laptop. Intrusive things like that where instead of the old kind of bust where you might be buying an underground comic or something off of a rack in a shop, now it might be something you download on your computer that the thought police think you shouldn't have. And sometimes there are cases where it doesn't even involve sexual comics. We've had cases where an artist named Paul Mavridis was just sending his comics to his publisher and the state of California wanted to charge him an excise tax or a sales tax just on sending his art to his publisher, which was crazy. But we spent tens of thousands of dollars fighting the California Board of Equalization to overturn that so that they couldn't do it to other artists or it didn't set a precedent for other states to try to do that sort of thing. So anything basically that inhibits free speech that involves comics, the CBLDF is there to protect. And I think that's going to be needed as long as we live. There's always new threats. 
I think we're going to stop with the comic book legal defense fund because I think we hit it on the nail. They currently have a bunch of fundraising where you get a bunch of signed books and that money goes to raising and really bringing awareness. So if you're into signed comic books, it's a quick plug for them. Go check out their website and pick up signed copies. They have like 300 or 400 different books up that are signed. Really cool just to give them a quick plug. And then I just want to quickly touch upon the last component, which is what you reinvented yourself really in 1999 as you create your art agent as well for many people from Will Eisner and Harvey Kurtzman and a few other artists. So what was that like getting to reinvent yourself and dealing with comic books and art, but dealing with it from more of an original artist and a state position? When Kitchen Sink Press died, it had been in existence for 30 years, and so a good part of my self-being, my self-identity, my livelihood was attached to it, and so it was pretty scary when it went under, but I realized this happens all the time to people and got to stand up, sweep the dust off, and start over. So I began focusing more on, as you say, representing other talent because I understood the publishing industry. I understood legal contracts and I was a cartoonist myself. And so put those three together and it's a natural background for an agent. In terms of selling the art, I had already been helping people like Eisner and Kurtzman and some of the underground artists sell their art over the years. So I began to do that in a more focused way. I also went back to what I would call my creative roots, which was wanting to write and draw again. So I started taking on projects that had long been on my back burner, books I wanted to do. And in most cases, I would find a writing partner to help ensure that it got done. So I worked with Paul Buell, did The Art of Harvey Kurtzman. I worked with Jim Denke, did a book overseeing his graphic history of underground comics. I worked with my own daughter, Violet, to do a book recently on a great illustrator from the turn of the last century called Harrison Cady. I worked with a guy named Mike Schumacher to do a biography of Al Cap, an artist that I had long admired as an artist, but knew was kind of a less than desirable human being. All of these aspects of comics history had always fascinated me, and so it was a chance to put some of that knowledge and research into books to share with others. started to get back to the drawing board. I'll never be a prolific cartoonist, but I enjoy doing a story and a page and commissions and so on now and then. So every day I'm juggling with various hats and having overall a lot more fun than I did when I was running a publishing company because that's a pretty stressful thing. Anybody who's ever had a small business and had to deal with payroll and employees and all the headaches that can come from running a business every day understands how on one level it might be a relief to walk away from that even though it was also painful. So I still am full of energy and I still consider myself full of ideas, full of ambition, a lot of things I still want to accomplish. And speaking about things that you have accomplished, you and John Lynn, who is your business partner in a few ventures, have a relationship with Dark Horse Comics, where they have published many of your books, including the Will Eisner, the Centennial Celebration, the oddly compelling art of Dennis Kitchen, Al Cap's Complete Shamus, those volumes, the newspaper strips, and the book that really, I think, sums up your entire career, the best of comics books, which involves Stan Lee, to name a few. 
what is it like to write these books and how was your relationship formed with John Lynn and what is it like to really write about comic history? Writing about comic history is delightful because it combines every pleasure that I would say I have related to the industry. John Lynn deserves lots of cred. He's, I think, the best designer in the business. He's won several awards most recently this past summer. The deluxe contract with God curator collection that we did won the Eisner Award in its category. John's not just an amazing designer, he's a terrific editor, he's a great business head, and I'm confident he's going to have a long future in this industry. He's quite a bit younger than me, so he'll have a career long after our partnership ends. We also share a common taste, I would say, in preserving the best of the past. And so there have been little nuggets, like you mentioned, the best of comics book, which was the experimental series I did for Stan Lee in 1973-74, where Stan actually bankrolled an experimental quasi-underground magazine for newsstands in which Stan was writing checks to people as unlikely as S. Clay Wilson and Kim Deitch and Justin Green and Trina and a whole cast of underground cartoonists. And it also allowed those artists during a time when undergrounds were struggling to get a much higher pay rate and still with virtually complete freedom. I say virtually because it wasn't quite the same, but it was still for a new Stan magazine, pretty outre. And so collecting that was great. And Stan, while he was still with us, was gracious enough to do a nice intro for it and to praise it. We also did a gigantic artist edition type book of Frank Miller's Sin City. We did several Harvey Kurtzman books, like a definitive reprint of Jungle Book and Trump, not the president, but the magazine that Harvey Kurtzman did with Hugh Hefner back in the mid-1950s that almost everybody, you know, under a certain age has no idea even existed, but it was pretty amazing. It had the top talent of the time, like Wally Wood and Jack Davis and Will Elder and Kurtzman himself. So bringing that back was terrific fun, and it even allowed us to show what would have been in the final unpublished issue where only part of the content survived. For all those things, I try to also write introductory material, pull things out of the archives that very few other people have ever seen. So it's treasure hunting and then archaeology and then revealing it to knowledgeable fans who care about comics history and the best of the past. And I think we're going to leave it at that, but we always end on the same two questions in my podcast. And the first one, and we've been talking for a while, and I think if people don't get anything out of this podcast, then they're not listening. But what advice do you have for somebody who wants to get into writing or illustrating comics? Well, I'd say it's the best of times and the worst of times. I'd say the best because the opportunities are so wide. And now, again, with technology, with the fact that anybody can start a strip and post it online, and anybody can take advantage of print-on-demand, you can show up at a small convention, and you can show off your own work in a way that wouldn't have been possible when I was getting a foot in the door. At the same time, the fact that comics are so popular now, there's a tremendous number of people all trying to do the same thing. So it's a little congested right now, and comic circulations aren't what they used to be because you've got to divide everything that's out there with a limited number of buyers, and so nobody's circulation is as high as they would like. But there are breakout opportunities, and every year you see a handful of graphic novels that come from virtually unknown talents that are able to either win awards or get 
strong sales and ideally both. So somebody who's really good and is willing to put in the work it takes, because this is not an easy field, drawing comics is hard work, but if you're willing to do it and you've got a day job that pays the bills and you're willing to put your evenings and weekends into your art and your craft, it can pay off. And it's also one of those few creative areas in entertainment where you can do it all yourself. You can theoretically write it, draw it, letter it, color it, or you can work with collaborators, but it's still so much easier to, say, create a graphic novel than to make your own movie where you've got to raise tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars and work with a team. Comics is still a unique form of self-expression, and one thing a lot of young cartoonists don't have is that perseverance to stick with it, to realize maybe your style isn't quite there, but you have to understand in six months or a year that style's probably going to get better. If your writing is a little weak, you will get better. You just have to work on all of those things. So I encourage it, but at the same time, can't deny it's tough to break in. And the second and final question is, do you have any projects you would like to mention? Well, I actually am working on two or three at the moment, but the publishers involved would not be happy if I let the cat out of the bag. So I can't, other than to say I am kind of simultaneously working on things that will not see the light of day for a while. I would rather plug the things that have come out in the past year that people may not have seen, like that Contract with God Curator's Collection. If you're a fan of Will Eisner or you want to know the really the origins of the graphic novel revolution, that's one you have to check out. And this one is a two-volume set where you have all of Will Eisner's pencils that survived and the ink pages all scanned at the highest resolution from the originals. And you get to see the thought process of a real master. You get to see how his first thoughts sometimes evolve, sometimes in a subtle way, sometimes in a dramatic way. Pages he penciled that he thought better of and chose not to ink. And things that when he finally inked it, he made some last moment changes for the better or worse. And so it's an insight into a comics genius. So I would encourage you to look at that or any of the others that Andrew mentioned that I've done with John Lind or the one I just did with Beehive Books that just came out a couple of months ago called The Madness and Crowds, The Teeming Mind of Harrison Cady. And most people listening never heard of Harrison Cady, but I would say go to Beehive or the Kickstarter site, look at the preview for it, look at the videotape, look at the examples. I suspect you may fall in love with this amazing one-of-a-kind artist who's long gone, but his work deserves to live on. I'll leave it at that, Andrew. I appreciate the interview, and I wish you luck with future podcasts. As always, thank you for listening to this week's episode of the podcast, and we can be found on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitch Radio, and anywhere else where you listen to your podcasts. And while you wait for next week's episode, you can check us out at popanimecomics.com for articles relating to anime, comics, and pop culture. Give us a follow on Twitter at popanimecomics. Like my Facebook page, popanimecomics. My Instagram is popanimecomics. I have a pro wrestling t-shirt shop where I sell a shirt. It's the only way I monetize, so feel free to check out a shirt if you like the way it looks. That's prowrestlingtees.com. And in the search bar, type in popanimecomics. And until next week, everybody, have a wonderful week.